This is a warning to all living mortals that on the 13th of December, Moose will release 13 of the most terrifying interviews of horror unto the world. That's right, 13 brand new episodes in the month of December leading up to our season premiere. And until then, horror hounds, mash on. Christmas, Moose returns to Camp Crystal Lake with Vincent DeSanti and his Friday the 13th fan film, Never Hike Alone 2. Welcome, Horror Hounds, to another episode of the 13 Horrifying Days of Christmas. I'm your host and gift giver, Moose. Today we have the gift of a sequel and it's a gift that keeps on giving. Who better to join us than friend of the show from Womp Stomp Films, Mr. Vincent DeSanti. Hey, thanks for having me, Moose. I'm glad to have you yeah, back. I guess you could say it's the gift that keeps on killing. It's the uh, the, the, uh, the the slasher uh, sequels. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the, the There's so many things that like pop into your head when you're... Like setting that up, you're just like, eh, just jump on one and go right. with it. Totally. How you been, man? I've been really good. You, not not as busy as uh, you've been since we last talked, but oh. but you know it's a, it's been uh, it's been a good time. Oh yeah, man, it's been it's been busy over at Womp Stomp Land, that's for sure. Let's just jump into it. I mean, the, the highly anticipated sequel. Never hike alone. Two. Mm-hmm. That that you know the the COVID delayed sequel. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is you know finally you know coming to fruition. Mm. Yes, it's been it's been in the making for a long time. In fact, right before I hopped on this, I was on Facebook doing some updates, and I got one of those. Hey, remember this post you did three or four years ago? It was from 2019, saying like, you know, how excited I was that we were about to step into Never Hike Alone two, and it was around the time that I came up with the idea of like, oh, we're going to break it up into a web series, and I had just signed Vinny Guasafara. I hadn't announced that yet, and I was like, you know, 2019 is going to be our year. <laughs> And, you know, we we're going to do the crowdfunding that year. And, of course, but later that year we announced um, uh, Never Hike in the Snow. And we crowdfunded for that. And that was successful. And we got that done. And as we were preparing to jump into what would have been a series of films, Never Hike Alone 2, 3, and 4, all, you know, 30-minute films that would have eventually made it. Obviously, the pandemic kind of threw us for a loop. And, you know, it it, it it's been a journey to, to sort of hang on to it because we were forced to sit back and watch the world go through the pandemic and i was working in hollywood at the time and i was paying close attention to how um films were getting made the the steps that had to go through and we were changing from this place where you could just go out to film 
and do it however you wanted to now like really having to watch out for people's health and unfortunately it's not just watching out for people's health it's also translating into the cost of producing the film so there was a cost that even though we crowdfund and we make a decent amount of money spending you know thirty thousand dollars of our budget on just covid protocol didn't seem financially feasible thirty thousand dollars should be going into the film for the fans not to some covid test that someone has to take or all these protocols or extra people that we have to have on set so we had to be patient so with the kind of you know the fizzling out of the pandemic you know the, the spread of the vaccine everybody feeling a lot more safer being on set we we're actually able to go back out now and do what we intended to do and not waste people's money when we asked them to, to crowdfund us and you know we've had a very successful crowdfunding campaign we've raised um you know through the campaign two hundred twenty seven thousand dollars obviously ten percent or a little bit more of that has gone back into indiegogo's pocket but you know this is more money than we've ever had um we took the idea of doing the film series as a, as a series of uh short films um and brought it back to doing a feature film because we didn't want people to wait we also learned from never hike in the snow that there was a bigger fan base waiting for us to make these films no longer were we scraping together twenty thousand dollars to try and make these films you know fans are showing up in droves i think it's over 2600 people have backed the film already and there's still an opportunity to back it which is really great um we were supposed to you know and again like as things keep getting delayed, you know, we raised that that money earlier this year. I believe in uh, May or June, we ended up sort of getting that funding. Um, and the process of trying to schedule it and actually finally lock things down and finally pay for locations. Locations got, got booked up. Um, what we didn't anticipate and what we should have anticipated was that after two years of everyone being locked indoors, that everywhere on earth was going to be booked for people to do stuff outside. So we started seeing this issue where we were going to have to, you know, schedule the film in blocks and it was going to increase the cost of just travel. And again, I was looking at it from the standpoint of like, I don't want to spend money on things that don't make the film better. Like, yes, we need to spend some money on travel and lodging and doing some stuff, but compounding costs of doing things that don't have anything to do with what's going to end up on screen is not what people paid for. So we ended up pushing production back to uh, the spring of 2023. We were able to get out and shoot in August of 2022, the opening of the film. So there's a few scenes that we were able to shoot. Uh, we had Tom Matthews on set. We had myself on set, Brian Forrest. Um, we have a few other people that are there that we don't want to talk about just yet. Uh, we want people to see it. And the idea is that we were able to create enough just to create the opening of the movie that we could release it in the same similar fashion, the way we did Never Hike in the Snow. I mean, fans, after they saw the teaser and then went and saw the film, they saw that we didn't really cut a trailer. We just showed you the opening of the movie. We showed you what the progress was and where we were at that time in post-production. So people felt... Um, you know, inclined to jump on the project then to see like, oh, wow, this is shot and it's looking good. I was on the fence about this snow idea, but now that I've seen some of it, I want to know what happens more. I want to help them out. Sort of the same strategy we're doing now. Obviously, we've raised a lot of money, but this is a feature film. We still have a majority, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the feature to still shoot uh, in April and May of, of 2023. So our idea is that we've raised the, you know, the 150 that we wanted to get started. We reached our first stretch goal of $200,000. That meant that we were able to add an additional scene to the film that we had to cut out, you know, for cost and time wise. 
Um, right now we're building towards $250,000 from that. We get to add even more kills to the film, but we've also added on, um, a, uh, an animated short that we're going to add to the Blu-ray if we reach $250,000 called the ghost in the fog. Uh, another prequel film, sort of like never hike in the snow about characters that wander into camp crystal Lake and don't make it out, you know, more people on those missing posters that we are going to see and never hike alone too. And just add to the aura of Jason has been missing for 20 years. Tommy has been searching for him. And in the meantime, Tommy's been failing because people have still been going missing. Um, it also allows me to sort of do something that I've always wanted to do, which is bring horror into animation through Friday the 13th. You know, I think that fans most, for the most part, would salivate at the fact of seeing Jason in an animated setting. The things you can do in animation that you can't do in live action. Uh, we definitely explored that uh, to the nth degree with our partners at Mako Animation, a Mexican-based animation company who are big fans of Never Hike Alone, supporters of Never Hike Alone. Uh, ended up being able to make friends with the owner of the company, Juan Rivera, who's you know a very good friend of mine now. And we've been sort of working uh, together on um, stuff. We just recently released... Um, a teaser and a trailer for Ghost in the Fog that people can watch on the YouTube channel to see sort of a taste of what uh, what's to come. Our hope is that since we had such a delay with Never Hike Alone 2, the animated short, which will be about seven to eight minutes long, was sort of something for them to chew on while we're continuing to work on the film. Because right now, Never Hike Alone 2, as the feature, is set to release on Friday the 13th of October 2023. Um, our goal is to bring it back to the Telluride Horror Show. It is the exact six-year anniversary to the first Never Hike Alone, and it's the first Friday the 13th in October since we released the first Never Hike Alone. So when we started to kind of talk about that as a group, it was like, you know what? This is sort of serendipitous. We feel like we opened up on this date. We're closing on the same date. It's closing a chapter on this journey that we've taken, making these fan films. You know, I thought it was going to be a two-year journey of making Never Hike Alone 1. It's turned into a six-year journey of creating an entire trilogy of films. Um, even though it's Never Hike Alone 2, I know a lot of people get confused with that, where they're like, well, didn't you make Never Hike in the Snow? And isn't that number two? And it's like, technically, that's zero, because Snow is a prequel. Snow is actually supposed to be the prologue to Never Hike Alone 2, 3, and 4 to say, hey, this story sort of expands out a little bit further than you think. Uh, we came up with some really cool ideas that kind of tie more characters in, and we'd like to sort of present this as a prologue to set up what we're doing for Never Hike Alone 2. And obviously, unfortunately, the pandemic set that back. So when we put the entire film back together, we wanted to say this is this is a sequel to Never Hike Alone 1. This is a continuation of that storyline directly. And Never Hike in the Snow is a short film. It's something that's meant to be, you know, it's a snack. It's it's same thing with disappear. I mean, it's easily digestible. Easily digestible. It's, it adds to the lore of it. Or sets more things up. It's like the graphic novel you read before you go into the film that sort of sets up a few extra things that, like, if you didn't have that there, you wouldn't miss it. But having it there sort of just gives everything a little bit more flavor. Same thing with the Disappear music video. I mean, the Disappear music video is technically the second film that we made, even though it's only four minutes long, but it does tell a story. It's, you know, it tells a pretty simple story of three kids who go into Camp Crystal Lake and don't make it out. But you also see this air of emotion that surrounds Jason and his loneliness and his confusion and his sort of stuck in the curse himself. And so it, it's allowed us when we've explored these short films to sort of 
you know, expand on the on the mythology of Jason and not do it in a way that says like Halloween ends did, which is just create and make up stuff that's never been there before. But say like, look, we've looked at the franchise. We've looked at things that are actually um, they're actually there in the films um, and we want to expand upon them. And we want fans to sort of enjoy the fact that we're looking a little bit beyond just the hack and slash of it all that there's you know there's a story to jason there's a story to tommy there's a story to andrew there's a story to oh andrew i, I say andrew the actor but um kyle mcleod there's a story to mark hill's mother diana hill who plays a, a huge role in, in the never hike alone 2 story we're continuing sort of her storyline of you know she lost her son three months ago and we're picking up with her and um you know, her relationship with Tommy working together at the hospital, the relationship of the town and, you know, Vinnie Guastafar playing Sheriff Rick Cologne and his relationship with Tommy and the worry that he has that Tommy's going nuts and, you know, he's going to end up killing people. So there, there's a lot going on. And, you know, it's been a long time coming, but I'm just excited to tell this story and get to it and get it out of my system. Because once I finish Never Hike Alone 1, once Tom Matthews signed on to the Never Hike Alone series and allowed us to expand his character, um, you know, I saw that as an opportunity to tell a story in the Friday the 13th universe with the actual characters actually carrying canon and lore with it that I think that people have been waiting for for a long time. I don't feel like there's ever been a satisfying conclusion in Friday the 13th. Um, I don't feel like we've ever seen a film, whether it be the actual films in the franchise or another fan film that has delivered a conclusion that made fans unanimously go, wow, I can live with this. Like I can see this is sort of like the bookend to what we watched from, you know, starting in 1980. Um, all those films that came after it, every time they added something to the, to the films or they took it in a new direction or they completely just spun it and added things that were never there before. We sort of watched this franchise spin out of control and never hike alone is an attempt by a fan to come in and say like, let me just make some sense of all of this and give us a conclusion that we can all turn around and be like, you know what, that finally we have the final chapter, the true final chapter of this story. And I can live with that. So before they go making remakes and doing all these new things that Vertigo and New Line and all these people want to do, Victor Miller and Sean Cunningham are getting back and they want to retell this story and think that they, they're they connected to it, that's fine. We'll see what they do with it. But for us, I feel like we've never had a conclusion to the first story. So that's sort of my goal with this entire encompassing you know project and why I've dedicated so much time of my life to it. Well, and yeah, I think that's part of why uh, the, you know, the fan films have done so well not only because you know uh, there was a whole lawsuit and you know there was no other content that could be released but you know you're right it's you know we you know we essentially we've all grown up on these movies and you know you you watch them and the, the only like continuing factor is jason i mean there's so many open-ended stories like what happens to the survivors what happens i mean you know like I, i've always you know i had like this kind of i don't know this like vision in my head of like a uh jason survivor support group somewhere that you know they meet once a month they're just yep i survived jason you know how you doing you know just 
because <laughs> you never you never hear what happened to these people. Well, I think that's one of the nice things we explored uh, in the Jason Rising project when I got to work with James Sweet and Carl Winery and the team at um, Red Crow Films up in, up in Portland was, you know, we explored this avenue of something that fans have wanted to, especially fans of Adrian King. Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Jason Rising, you should definitely watch it. But, you know, there, there's been a, you know, you know, save Alice type thing. Like Alice never died. Why kill Alice? That was the worst decision in right. horror movie history. Um and I went into that project, you know, Adrian wasn't involved right away. Alice wasn't involved right away. We sort of had a different sort of idea of how to end it. And as we were trying to accomplish it, um, we were sort of having issues on how to sort of execute it on the budget and how to do it creatively. And then lo and behold, in walks, you know, Adrian King showing interest in, in wanting to, to work with us. And, you know, I really credit James Sweet for, you know, pursuing her and, you know, getting her interested in the project. You know, Adrian was very involved with getting Amy Steele involved with the project. And that's when I saw it as an opportunity to be like, listen, like, I'm somebody who believes that Alice did die. Um, you know, we see the, you know, the dead body in front of the stump with the ice pick in, in the head. And we know that the filmmakers are trying to tell us that Alice was killed and dragged back to this shack. But at the same time, it's like, hey, this is a fan film. This is where we get to explore the what ifs and the what have yous. And, you know, let's say Alice did survive. What would she be doing? Where could she go? And in that film, a cool element, like and what I'm getting to is the element you're talking about. Is that we see that not only do we tie that Alice is alive, but so is Ginny. And Ginny is actually her psychiatrist because we know Ginny was going to yeah. grow up and be a psychologist. She was going for children's psychology, but you could probably understand that she probably went into trauma psychology after her experience, you know, involving Jason and probably being really interested in the fact that, you know, there are people out there. So I could, in your storyline, see the character of Ginny um, sort of taking on that role of everyone's sort of, you know, the, the mother of them, you know what I mean? Like she's sort of like right. the matriarch yeah. of the same, like, cause I would say of all, all the survivors, maybe other, other than Trish Jarvis, um, she was the most put together after her experience. And she seems to be the one who would be the most capable of sort of being the leader of that group. Um, you know, when you look at Chris Hickens, she went nuts. You look at Tommy Jarvis, he went nuts. You know, Trish sort of was in between. Pam was in between, even though she did dealt with Roy instead of Jason, but she still had to deal with Tommy. Uh, Meg, um, you know, Megan Garris, you know, I feel like she escaped, like she just got out of there. Um, and then you have, you know, <laughs> and then you start getting into the silly stuff, but you have like Rennie and, and you have Tina and, and sort of those things. So you can see these people coming together. I just... You know, I think at that point you start to get sort of you have to sort of blend all these stories together. And for me, where like like people like fans like you are, are wondering where the survivors have been through all of this. For me, I always wanted to know where's where's Jason's head at. What's going through Jason's head? like? What is it like living in that body, going through these experiences, going all the way back to being a child? Growing up with his mother, dealing with everything that he had to deal with, drowning in the lake, coming back from the dead, dealing with the fact that he's back from the dead, his mother is gone, her voice is telling him to kill, he's got to make it work, and then he starts to do it and things ravel out of control. He's trying to do what his mother tells him, but people are getting away, people are injuring him, and they're killing him, and he's 
reviving every single time and he wakes back up and every time he thinks he's his story is over that he's failed his mother the curse wakes him back up and he's back at it again and so he continues going until someone else puts him down and so it's like imagine living that experience and you know we think like he's almost stuck in this endless loop of failure exactly and so that is his own curse and for me that became a very interesting story to really explore of why is he doing this um how much you know you know especially in the disappear music video like how much passion does he really have left <laughs> for killing people like how much is it really like bloodthirsty maniac i gotta kill kill people versus like i'm doing what my mother tells me but why isn't this bringing me anything that i want it's not bringing my mother back to me i can't find the closure to move on i'm just stuck here so what good is this doing me? Like, I'm here for revenge, but my revenge isn't amounting to anything. It's just a pile of dead bodies that don't bring me happiness, that don't bring my mother to me. What am I doing here? And so, you know, I think that's really, for me, what explains his absence from the years of what I call, like, when I, when I tell my story, I really sort of depart from the new line era where we go to Jason goes to hell and all of a sudden we're introducing all these family members that never existed before. And then you got the Necronomicon. So when we kind of go off the rails, really off. I mean, you could say that we went off the rails in seven, but, but really Jason goes to hell is where it really goes off the rails. And so when you're interested you know, even introducing like, you know, the, the film almost went off the rails when they start, they tried to start introducing a father character, which, you know, Friday the 13th has never been about the dad. You know, whoever Jason's father was, was a deadbeat. So why does he get to come back in after Jason's become famous and all of a sudden take credit for everything that he's ever done? It doesn't really make a lot of thematical, like, thematical sense to the Friday the 13th franchise because it's always been about mother and son. So we really wanted to focus on that. And that's really where my drive is that we see jason's connection to his mother's head we see jason's connection to his mother's spirit you know we really set you know we set that up in you know never hike alone when kyle gets all the way deep into the camp it isn't until he discovers his mother's head that jason jumps into action because now he knows that this character has a reason to go and bring outside people into the camp and ruin what jason has created which is the safety net of of silence you know what jason really starts to realize is that killing people doesn't bring him any peace it actually creates chaos every time he goes out and kills people the townspeople show up they hit him in the head with something they throw him in the lake they burn him they shoot him they do all these things it's, it's not what he wants to deal with so if he can go back to that life that he had between parts one and two where he was living in the forest he was moving stealthily when he did have to kill people it wasn't out of tracking them down and trying to make them pay it was i'm just trying you know other than alice because he was getting revenge for his mother the, the, the first real kill that mostly for him it was trying to remain secret trying to remain hidden trying to remain out of the public eye so he could somehow reconnect with the spirit of his mother through that altar and that's what for me, Never Hike Alone became was, you know, after part eight, you know, where I kind of left out before in this story, um, that, you know, he came back to Crystal Lake. It's been a series of blunders, one after the next, from, you know, his first appearance in two all the way through eight. You know, he's weak. He is sort of regaining his strength, but he's in no 
no way looking for a fight. So he learns how to become a recluse. He learns, you know, sort of relearns how to sort of make a life within the camp, find hidden places within the camp so that when people wander through or when Tommy comes looking for him, because Tommy still feels that connection to Jason, you know, that haunting spirit, that haunting feeling of the curse that has followed Tommy around that draws him back to Jason that knows that even if Jason's intention is to remain hidden and not really harm anybody anymore, that he's still going to have to because when people like Mark Hill wander into the camp or when people like these kids wander into the camp or like the characters in Ghost in the Fog wander in the camp, he has to protect his secrecy. So above all else, he will protect his secrecy, but he's not going to seek out the confrontation. The confrontation needs to come to him, and only when it comes to him will he step up. And the difference is with Never Hike Alone 2 is, is at the end of Never Hike Alone, we see that Jason's attempt after all these years has finally failed. Someone actually got away for the first time, and that's what makes Kyle MacLeod such a special character. With all these people going in and out of Camp Crystal Lake, and these people going missing and never being found and their, you know, their cases never being solved. All of a sudden, Jason knows that the gig is up. It's finally time to return to his former self, that he needs to go and punish these people for ruining his perfect life. Not a perfect life, but something that he was able to make peace with. And now his peace has been disturbed. And now he has a new reason to take revenge, take revenge on on Kyle specifically, but also get his his final revenge on Tommy and whoever gets in between him and those two people are going to get it. And that's what makes Never Hike Alone 2 so special is that, you know, for the people who have been critics of Never Hike Alone that have said, you know, Never Hike Alone, just a guy wandering around in the, in, in the forest, like there's nothing happening. There's no death. It's only one guy. Or in Never Hike in the Snow, only two people die. And, you know, there's too much story going on. You know, in Never Hike Alone too, there's still plenty of story, but now there's an excuse and there's a reason and there's a motivation to bring more people into the story. Not just haphazardly dropping characters in just to create a body count, but rather creating a story that makes you feel like everything that's happening is happening for a reason. It's happening because of cause and effect. And when films are able to present that to you in, in their stories – it makes the story feel natural. It puts you on a ride and you don't even know you're on the ride. You're just enjoying it. And that's something that I feel like as a viewer, horror films have really struggled with in the last decade. I mean, I feel like there are very seldom like films that I feel like, oh, wow, this was very well crafted. A lot of it feels like this is a gimmick. And the gimmick has worn out its welcome about halfway through the movie. And I'm no longer interested in watching this. And it's a frustration that I felt from as, as a horror fan. And so to have this opportunity to sort of be like, hey, you can tell good story in horror, too. Like, you don't have to completely abandon the rules of storytelling to create something interesting for people to watch. You don't have to break character. You don't have to defy logic. You can actually put all of those things into your film. And if you write it well enough, you can actually really entertain people and not be you know, not fall into the cheap tropes. And I feel like, you know, Never Hike Alone has been like a very good um, palette for me to, or canvas, I should say, to really show that it is possible. It is possible to tell good story in horror. And that if you want to tell, you want to be a horror storyteller or you want to be a horror filmmaker, that 
with a little bit of extra work and a little bit of extra, you know, time in the script and development that your film or films in general don't have to be cheap horror films. They can be well-told stories that, you know, have emotion and, you know, feel, you know, at the end of the day, they, they, they feel like they've earned a place in cinema versus just being something that makes some, you know, some company money because people wanted to go pay to see it. Well, and yeah, that, that's one thing that I'm starting to notice that like, Horror fans don't seem to know what they want. You'll hear them say, you know, we, we, we want the gore. We want the, you know, for it to be a good horror film, it has to be a slasher. You know, so like in this case, we need, you know, we need to up the body count. Okay, so say you, you know, retroactively go in and up the body count. Well, then the complaint would have been there wasn't enough story. They didn't take enough time to... uh let us care about the uh, characters. So, we, you know, we didn't care if they lived or died. You know, you don't have, like you said, you don't have to have, you know, a massive body count just to be a horror film. Yeah, and I think that, like, one thing that, that I will do to catch myself here is that, like, not everybody's looking for story. Some people just want the mindless violence. Some people just want out-of-the-box thinking. They don't want it to, it doesn't have to connect to things. But for me, as a viewer... I like when things continue. I love when you make three films and you can look at something in the third film and say, wait a second, they set that up in the first film. This is something like, look at the way all these puzzle pieces fit together. It's so seamless. Like, wow, an actual care went into this. And for a lot of people, they don't need it. They're just like, give me the garbage. And, and they, they chew it down with, with, you know, without, without a thought. And for them, they're just happy that there's something on the screen. There's something entertaining them. You know, there's blood and guts everywhere. The effects are out of control and that's their entertainment. It doesn't matter how you get from one kill to the next, because they really don't care. They don't care about the characters. They're not invested in storytelling. They just want a good show. They just want, you know, blood and mayhem. And, and that's fine. Uh, there, there's a fan base for that. But for me, I need it. You know, I, I, I grew up on films where I spent my, my time questioning how didn't those two things connect? And I would say that a lot of my enjoyment from seeing things not be well put together sort of, you know, disappointed me as a fan. Like I would be let down and be like, well, you know, they spent all this time setting something up and then we didn't really get to see the conclusion of that. What happened? What happened to this character? What happened to, to that storyline? What happened to this sort of thing? Or where did this story come out of? Where did this special power that this character now has, like all of a sudden he's a body jumping demon snake? Like, where did you get this? Like, where in your brain did you say, you know what fans are really going to love? You know what Friday the 13th's really been missing is demon snakes. We need, we need to have demon snakes. I think what people want is they don't want Jason on screen. We want to see a bunch of actors who we sort of recognize from other things doing the killing for Jason instead of actually watching Jason. We need more demon snakes on a plane. Demon snakes on a plane. Friday the 13th, part 15. You know what I mean? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's sort of that. And, and so... When you look at it, you know, 20, 30 years later, you can say, well, you know, Jason Goes to Hell might not be the most, you know, canonically uh, accurate film to the franchise. 
but it has its fans. And there are people that like to remove it from the franchise or even consider it part of the franchise as canon. And like, yeah, this is where it was going. And I love that, that they just brought the Necronomicon in out of nowhere. I love this and I love that. I love the effects and, you know, the, the, the production value and all these things. I've, I've listened to fans talk about it and I understand that that's their choice. You know, that's their, you know, everyone has free will to like whatever they want. But it's sort of like when those fans sort of stand up and say, like, no, this is the way Friday the 13th was supposed to go. I just want to raise my hand and say, excuse me, but no, not the majority. You are a very small minority of people who enjoyed this. And that's good for you. But the rest of us are still waiting for somebody to come up with an idea that actually makes fucking sense. And, you know, I've made friends with with Adam Marcus uh, since then. And he's a great guy. He's a very smart dude. And he'd be the first one to tell you, and hopefully when his 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 uh, documentary comes out, that like body jumping demon snakes weren't his first idea. He was sort of pushed into that idea by by you know Sean Cunningham, who then doesn't want to take credit for it. Um, but you know he pitched me his idea for what he wanted to do as a Friday the Thirteenth film, and that was a way better idea than what they did. And I'm sure that like his experience making the film and the connections that he made and sort of the fan base that built around it has made up for the fact that he didn't get to make the film that he wanted, which is happens a million times in this industry because in the world when the producers are coming down on you and the production company is coming down on you and you're a 20 year old first time filmmaker or first time director at that level, um, sort of doing you do what they tell you. And he was put in a position to sort of have to eat crow and have to deal with the backlash from that film because the powers that be just didn't understand what they had in their possession. And that's ultimately where I come into where I can say that like you can point to to it and say things go wrong in these series because the people making the films don't understand. They don't care and they don't want to care. They just want to make another movie. They just want the money to pile up and then they want to move on. It doesn't, they have no emotional investment in it. And when you get people who are emotionally invested in these films, who are emotionally invested in these characters, who want to say, let me bring this character and expand upon the things that collectively we as a community of, of, of horror fans want to see that's when you see the real success and you know i point to halloween ends again as like the most recent controversial film for a character that we've grown up with for over 50 years now saying or is it been 50 or 40 whatever it is the fact that like you know well if you listen to the last one it's been 40 years 40 damn years of, of michael myers and you look at that and well i guess now it's 45 years um yeah. And you look at it and you say, you know, is this what fans really wanted? Like, yeah, it's it's different. But even in its difference, you can pick apart the film in so many different ways that like it it's just different to be different. You actually didn't finish the story that you were trying to tell. You didn't complete, you know, you didn't show us a film that you marketed. You know, it was marketed as Michael versus Laurie. And at the end of the day, it was two minutes of Michael versus Laurie. And the film ends and we're supposed to be like, oh, this was great and brilliant because I didn't do the conventional thing. And that's fine if you're making an anthology piece that doesn't connect to two other films that previously are supposed to lead up to this moment. And then you start introducing powers that and, you know, character traits that this character has never shown before on screen, and especially in the first two movies. It's like you're not just 
you know, betraying the character as he was created in 1978, in which you have lopped off the rest of the series saying, well, the rest of the series is nonsense. We're going back to the original. Um, we're going back to the original film and we're really building off that. So if you go do that and you look at what John Carpenter says about Michael, about how he's pure evil, he is like the wind. He doesn't think, he doesn't feel, it's, you know, he's not human, he's supernatural, all these different things. And then you start to undo what the creator of the character says. It's sort of sacrilegious. And so you have to step back and say, like, well, if you're if you're going to go through all this trouble to eliminate all these other films, and you're going to say that you're going to do it better, and you're going to bring it justice to what John Carpenter originally wanted, and then you betray that, and you betray the fans in that way, and you say, like, ah, psych, we're just going to do whatever we want, just like Rob Zombie did, just like, you know, the Cult of Thorn, and, and you know, we might as well just bring back Buster Rhymes and have him kick him in the balls out of nowhere. Like, let's just do whatever we want. <laughs> You know, it's sort of it, it's a betrayal. And I think that, like, fans have every right to be upset. Um, you know, fans can enjoy it. You know, to me, Halloween ends is the Jason goes to hell of the Halloween franchise. Now, it is, you know, one that like a very select people will love and defend and say that it has reason and say that it's original and do all these things. But at the end of the day, when you really break down the film and you say, well, let's talk about all these things, like all these things you say about how it's original and stuff like, look, there are scenes within scenes that that don't even match. There's character arcs that don't even follow through. There's carrying it through from kills, like all of a sudden, like these characters have changed in a way that doesn't really make sense. And that's, you know, I get the, you know, the spirit of exploration, but at the end of the day, you have to deliver on your promises. And it's, 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 it, I don't know, it, to me, it's a virus that goes around these films sometimes. I feel like, you know, creators or directors or writers get restless and so they just want to try new things and they don't really think about the fan. And, you know, there's this old argument with directors about like, you only make an, you make the film for an audience of one. You make it for yourself. You make the films that you want to see, which is true. I'm making Never Hike Alone in the sense of this is a film that I've always wanted to see. But the encouragement is that I also know a lot of other people want to see it, too. And so when I'm making a decision, I don't make selfish decisions to be like, well, this is what I need the character to do because I need this scene to go out this way. Is I go, OK, I'm going to make this decision, but how is this going to affect the people who are going to watch it? Is this going to decrease how much they like the film or is it going to increase how much they like the film or is it not going to have an effect? And if you're going to sit, sit there and constantly going like, well, like the marketing for Halloween ends, going like, well, I know this film is going to piss people off. Well, if the film's going to piss people off, why are you making it? You know what I mean? Like, if you know the film is going to piss fans off, why are you going to do that to them? People are living hard enough lives as it is. Inflation is going up. We just got out of a pandemic. You know, we have a whole generation who can't even afford a house and all this stuff. And now you're going to take their horror, favorite horror villain and completely throw him under a bus. And say, ha, 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 you guys are going to hate this, but your kids are going to love it. It's like, you know what, why are you putting us through that experience? We didn't sign up for this. We signed up for a movie that we wanted to see, not a movie that we regret seeing. And I think it's, you know, it's one thing when you're working from an original story. You have brand new characters that people have never seen before. You can make as many awkward decisions as you want because you can rewrite the character and then sort of reshape up your script to make sure that whatever decision changes the aspect of your character, you can go back and change the other scenes to make sure that that change is supported. When you have a character that's been established for all this time, whether it's Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger or you know Michael Myers or Leatherface, 
you have to look back at the history and understand that there's a fan base there that has expectations. And if you're going to subvert expectations, you better do it so well that people welcome it with open arms. And that's something I did with Never Hike Alone. I subverted expectation by saying, hey, we're going to do one versus one because that's all we can afford. Uh, if I could do anything more, I would. But my hands are tied because I don't have any money to bring in 50 people to get murdered. And within that context, within that that box that I had to work in, what I had to make sure it was I didn't betray the actual franchise. We had to take some, you know, a few, um, you know, diversions here or there just to sort of make it work. But it wasn't anything that was, you know, sacrilegious. It was something that, you know, with a little bit of explanation could be explained away. And I think within our explanations or in our explorations, I think that people enjoyed sort of the way it expanded the character. And it was built on the fact that I didn't want to piss off fans. You know, I could have done a lot of things that really pissed off fans. And but luckily, my instincts never took me down that direction. And I knew that the minute things started heading in a certain direction that I couldn't take it there. And, you know, I, I had to and if I couldn't justify some of the choices to make the film, then I I wouldn't have made the film. Um, it's a it's a big responsibility that I, that I think that, like, when certain, you know, especially in, in the big world, um, but even I've seen like, you know, and it's different in fan films, too, because fan films are sort of a what if world. Like we get to explore more things that are like, of course, this never happened. Or of course, this would never be this way. But, you know, it's a fan film, so it's not really tied in and it doesn't really count. So go ahead and have at it. Go and, you know, bring Alice back. Go ahead and make Elias Voorhees the central character. Like, go ahead and, you know, and, you know, have Jason have a mask in between parts one and two and then go back to the sack. Like it doesn't, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. Um, but, you know, when it comes time to, for the big time and the times that you really want to get audiences to jump behind it, you don't want to alienate like a complete giant section of the fan base. You've got to pay attention to those those core values of character that, you know, feel true to a collective group of people. And when you betray that core value, you betray the fan base and you can call yourself explorative. You can call yourself whatever you want to do it, but you've betrayed an entire group of people that have spent a lot of time investing their time and thoughts into this franchise. And that should not be the goal of the filmmaker. And so that's why when I'm making these never hike films, like, yes, I'm making them for me. Uh, it's a story that I came up with. It's a story I've always wanted to see. It's how this, you know, I've always wanted to see the films portrayed as to the best of my ability with the budgets that I have. Obviously my ideas could be even bigger and badder and, you know, all these different things. But at the end of the day, like my number one goal is to not betray the character, to not betray the characters that I love and not betray the fan base that, you know, is looking forward to seeing these films. They don't want to see stuff that, you know, is going to make them think less of the character or make them feel like the character would never do that. Um, and, and I think that that, that's a big part of the, the, not my passion, but my motivation for, for doing this is that like, I want to make things that people like, I don't want to make things that piss people off. Well, and all this talk about instinct is a perfect uh, segue because uh, I, I wanted to ask, you know, with the a animated uh, Jason, um, as you mentioned, you, you know, you're able to explore areas of the character that you can't really do on film. Were you at all tempted to like push him 
just past like his normal like what would be his normal limits and just like stretch it just a little farther um in gore yes um things i couldn't that would be way too expensive to sort of pay for i mean if i had a trillion dollar budget like i could do some of these things but i think with with this friday the 13th short the ghost in the fog it's really a it's an exploration in, in the ways you can take jason through animation so it's a short film we can only, you know, it, it, we don't want to go too crazy because the budget would go out of control on it and we wouldn't be able to, you know, accomplish it in a way that we wanted to. So it's a it's pretty grounded story. Um, you know, Jason really doesn't do anything fanatical. We just wanted to more show like, hey, this is what Jason could look like in animation. This is what kills could look like in animation. Here's what the can't could look like in animation. Here's some ways that our animated film ties into our live action films. You'll see visual cues of being like, oh, this is Never Hike Alone universe. We are in the Never Hike Alone world. If we're able to raise more money, there's another story that um, that I really wanted to uh, really want to tell. And um, I think that one's called The Ghost of Crystal Lake, if I'm remembering it correctly, because it's had a few different names. And this is something that we would be able to explore things that we could never really do in live action. And that is the story of how did Jason come back to Crystal Lake after Manhattan? How did he make that trip? What was his physical, his sort of physical being? What was his mental being? And then what are some ways that we could explore the camp and the curse and to show some extracurricular supernatural activity that when Jason is at his weakest, how the curse can kind of come in and support him and bring a character through this experience like we've never seen in a Friday the 13th before. And I would say, and I would warn people up ahead. I'm like, this isn't a Friday the 13th like you've ever seen before. Um, these are brand new ideas that I'm introducing that it's very explorative. It's very, you know, avant-garde in the way that we're going to have the, um, the character sort of experience his time at Camp Crystal Lake. Uh, the story would be about a, um, the story basically follows this war veteran who is a lot like a John Rambo, um, somebody who's experienced a lot of traumatic things in his time in service. Um, he has separated himself from society. He's, you know, a wandering vagabond going from town to town, looking from work, just looking to run away from his problems. And he ends up in Crystal Lake and tries to make a life there tries to find a place to settle down, tries to find some work, just enough to, you know, get enough money to buy some food and, you know, maybe find a place in town. And, you know, in the process, he does find some work, but he doesn't find a place to stay. People from Crystal Lake don't really like outsiders. They don't like people wandering around, but he does find someone nice enough to give them some work on a farm and he has to go find a place to live. And being a war veteran, being someone who has spent time out in nature and living in the worst type of elements that you could imagine, he has no problem living in the woods. But lucky for him, I guess you could say, depending on how you see it, he stumbles across upon Crystal Lake, a bunch of empty cabins where nobody's living and nobody's wandering around and decides to make himself a home in Crystal Lake. And he happens to do it at a pretty good time. Jason's not there anymore. Jason, you know, wandered off to, to Manhattan and that's a long journey. So there's time enough for him to sort of create his own little space in the camp um, and, you know, live his life. And at the same time, deal with some emotional and mental issues that have been 
um, following him through his journey and fighting those things. But at the time where he thinks he's about to find that peace is about the time when Jason comes back to the camp and finds someone living there. But unfortunately for Jason, after being washed away in toxic waste, walking however many, you know, hundreds of miles to get back home, um, he's not in the same position to sort of just attack and kill somebody. So that's when we start to explore um, these other ways that sort of the camp can fuck with people. And it was something that really sort of like interested me. And so when we pitch that to people, that's going to be the first thing I say is like, this isn't your typical Friday story. This is something that's very different. And we will see Jason kill people. We will jump to spots of like, while we're watching this one character sort of build his life and sort of tell his story, it's very character driven. We're also jumping back to moments where we're seeing Jason at certain pinpointed times where, you know, just as like an example, I'll pitch one scene where, you know, somebody's throwing something away in a garbage can and they find Jason sort of like curled up behind, you know, the dumpster and doesn't know, thinks it's a dead body. But when they go to sort of like see what it is, Jason has to react and does kill them. Um, you know, Jason killing people along the way. And one of the things I, I love about the film is that there's sort of like this ticking clock that in the background, there's these reports of people finding dead bodies that are all leading back to Crystal Lake. So it starts in New York and then, you know, there's a, somebody gets killed on the turnpike and then someone's killed, you know, at a rest stop and someone's killed at a gas station. And then all of a sudden Jason's back home and he's finally back and there's this guy, but this isn't like anyone that he's ever met before. You know, this is like a John Rambo. This guy is built. This guy has survival skills. He has weapons on him. Uh, he's armed and it isn't the same, the same, it isn't an even battle. This guy is actually stronger than Jason at this point. So we get to see sort of Jason work from a different standpoint, but we also see the curse sort of come in and do some things that we've never seen it do before. And in animation, that becomes a lot easier. It becomes a lot easier for people to suspend their disbelief and go on a journey that they've never seen before versus in live action, it would feel off-putting. And so I think that that's something I'm really looking forward to that, you know, at the end of Never High Glow 2, say we don't raise enough money for the, for the ghost of Crystal Lake, that eventually I'd love to tell that story, whether it's animated, whether it's a comic book, you know, I'm, I'm really loving what I'm seeing out of the guys from, from Jason Rises, the, the graphic novel. Um, I think that they have a great concept for something to tell Friday the 13th stories and, with Friday the 13th coming back to theaters next year, probably, um, I think that horror and Friday the 13th fan fiction novels and graphic novels are going to be the way to go for future, you know, fan fiction aficionados to sort of tell their stories. Because I feel like we've sort of reached the peak of fan filmdom. There's almost too many fan films out now. You can't really differentiate one from the next. And they're all sort of at the same level, and I think people are discovering that they're very expensive, um, they're not easy to handle, and they don't necessarily always come out the way that we intend them to do. Um, you know, even myself, like I had big ideas, and like at the end of the day, I'm like, I got it pretty close, but I didn't get exactly what I wanted. At least people still like it. But I feel like in the graphic novel world and in the and in the 
the literary world, you can really delve into and expand upon those things that we really want to do and bring it. You know, there is no scaling back. It's no, we can do whatever we want because it's written word or it's drawn. So I think that it, I think future going, if, if you're a fan filmmaker and you want to make a fan film, I would say before you go do that, uh, explore just writing a novel, you know, printing a book and, or, you know, having, you know, partnering with some graphic uh, artists and coming up with a graphic novel because it's, from the production standpoint, it's a lot more easier to uh, cap those costs and fulfill those um, promises versus the, you know, the world of filmmaking, which is very, um, you know, which is very risky. And I feel like a lot of people are diving into the world of filmmaking without the proper experience and are learning the hard way how hard it is to make films. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, walking away from them in massive debt and, you know, feeling let down for the fact that, you know, it didn't achieve the height that it thought it was going to achieve. And, you know, very few fan films really have. And so, you know, it depends on what your passion is. If you're a filmmaker, you want to do it, then go for it. But I would say that, um, you know, the novel side of it is, is probably the future of fan fiction for Friday the 13th anyway, because I can't think of how many more <laughs> Friday the 13th fan films there could really be after this. <laughs> So I definitely want to see the story of the the ghost of Crystal Lake, w whether, like you said, it's graphic novel or, you know, I think animated would definitely be the way to go. I like kind of like a dark, almost like Japanese style am animation, I think would be uh, really cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's a that's a cool thing about animation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would probably I mean, I've always been a big fan of like in the style of Batman the animated series or even like Sin City, things yeah. like that. Um, but like an anime, that would be really cool. Even like some really cartoonish stuff, like if it was like Rick and Morty, you know what I mean? Like animation and graphic novels allow you to explore different versions. And that's, that's what I love about it is that you can really expand that world. You don't have to be like stock character. Jason has to look the same in every single one. In fact, making Jason look wildly different in these avenues is actually a welcome addition to it we want to see different jasons and obviously and like if this worked out well enough for for some of these uh, for some of these people making these things maybe this is something that the studios can look at and go oh wow that's a really interesting design this would be really cool to animate and then we can take this animated version of the character and we could create a funko pop out of it or you can create a NECA figure or we can create new posters or t-shirts or all these things that really fund the friday the 13th franchise and keep it alive then you have the new films coming out so you got the jasons that are coming out of those if you had a netflix series of animated films or live action shorts or anthology films you have those and it's sort of this you know, this cottage industry within the own franchise and the way that Chucky's doing it in a way where, you know, Child's Play had its original remake with a completely different, you know, Chucky in it. And then you got the Child's Play series, which is continuing like the previous films. And so fans are getting their cake and eating it too. And that's with, you know, I love Chucky, but Chucky's no Jason. So why can't we do this with Jason? Why does Jason have to be the only you know, character right now who's not getting any love? And you could say the same thing about Freddy Krueger. But you have the and, and I would say that Freddy and Jason are the two biggest icons out there. You know, Michael's obviously right there toe to toe with them. Leatherface and Chucky are sort of right there, maybe right below it. Same thing with like Hellraiser and Pinhead. Not quite as popular in, in pop culture, but Jason and Freddy are like the mecca. And for them to not be in the forefront of this 
you know, slasher resurgence, this remake resurgence of, of our time, you know, they sort of went through it in the late, you know, 20 aughts where, you know, I would say it was very hit and miss, like Freddie got, you know, punked and that, you know, he did not have a good film come out of that. Jason was a 50-50 affair. I didn't like it. Other fans like it. But whether you loved it or not, it didn't do well enough to make any other film after it. It went into development hell. So, you know, in success in the long-term sense, it was a failure to me as a fan because it, the film wasn't good to warrant an, another sequel. And it wasn't good to warrant three or four more films in the time span that they had it, which was their original plan, I think, um, before the lawsuit. And then the lawsuit happened. So now there was, you know, we're really dealing with our two, these two big um, horror icons not getting justice for the fact that if all these other horror horror icons are here having a resurgence and having all these films made and TV shows and all these opportunities to come back into the, you know, into the, into the culture, whoever's running these studios has to make it priority number one to say, we got to get Jason and Freddie back into the fold. Obviously original horror is super important. We have to keep that going too, but these tentpole staple characters are what fund everything. If Friday the 13th makes gobs of money for a studio, they can take some of that investment and they can put it into original horror and we can grow more. Exactly. And it all feeds into itself. Everything supports itself. And when, and if they can get that done and, and see that as the business model, that's going to be the best thing for horror fans. And again, and then you do get to explore different things. You can make horror films that appeal to horror fans like me that want a little bit more thought to them, um, that want a little bit more, you know, storytelling and logic and things that make that make you go wow i didn't see that coming and then you can also make the even cheaper sort of who cares about story let's just get something wacky out there and you know see what comes of it um and you know i think about like the terrifiers of the world like stories that aren't really so like story rooted they're more rooted in like this is an experience for you to come and just sit back, eat your popcorn and watch mayhem on screen. And so when you have those two sort of spectrums of the world, um, these these tentpole films can fund those. But the tentpole films, the, the characters that we love have to be good. They can't be substandard. They can't be Halloween ends. You know what I mean? Like it. Halloween Ends should have made $100 million its first weekend, but because they ended up going off the rails, um, you had a lot of people walking out of the theater saying, don't go see it, so they end up making less. Um, so that's less money that can be in invested in the next, you know, if there was, you know, a budget of money that they were going to build from that to do new original horror, it not reaching certain levels means a few films in that sort of slate don't get funded anymore because the profits aren't there so they got to cut those ties it's you know everything feeds into the next it's it's not just you know singular thing everything in in production companies you know every single project that they release affects other projects if a project doesn't do well if you have something of a similar idea and they don't execute their idea well well it doesn't matter if your idea is better or would have been executed better fans are not going to watch your film because the last person who did it failed and you really, you know, it's your responsibility as a filmmaker that when you're tackling a subject to do it as best you can and to deliver something that fans want to see and want to tell their friends about. If you don't do it, you're hurting other people. And 
that's just sort of the way it goes. And so it's a big responsibility when you, when you're making these films, whether you're doing it at the pro level or the fan film level, you know, or the independent level that whatever you bring to the table and whatever subject you are, you are tackling that you do it to the, the utmost best ability that you can. And if you don't know what you're doing, or if you're just out there with a bunch of money, just throwing it at the wall because you just happen to have money and you like making films, then maybe you should reconsider what you're doing because if you can't add to the to the to the industry if you can't add to the community and you're just there because you want to be famous then maybe you're in it for the wrong reasons well and if somebody does want to throw a whole bunch of money at something throw it at me <laughs> by all means throw it your way and i i personally have been pining for a animated series of uh nightmare on elm street because if there's any character that lends itself to an animated series, it's Freddy. Oh, totally. Oh, my God. You could go so many different places with that. Just look at, uh, what's his name? So you, you look at how many places you could go with it, and you could get Robert back for a little bit to play the role yeah. without actually having to be the role. Exactly. I mean, it's a dream come true and an instant moneymaker. Totally. And you can, even within the same story, you could explore different avenues of animation. One dream mm -hmm. could could look completely different from the next. You could travel between yeah. dreams. I mean, look. I mean, you could even have it tr translate into a world where Scary Terry's there. Uh, the closest thing we've had to an animated <laughs> Freddy Krueger uh, in, in all this time. Um, all the Rick and Morty fans will get what I'm talking about out there. Right. But it's, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that, that that there's something there to it. And I think just an, like animation in general, even for Michael, even for Leatherface, even you know, Hellraiser is another one. I mean, Hellraiser is the one that I think. Oh, God, yeah. Completely handcuffed by live action. You could go into so many different places in a Hellraiser animated film, um, you know, bring back Jamie Clayton or, you know, bring back Doug Bradley, whatever you want to do. But there was such a big avenue there. And, such, and, and the fact that studios aren't taking advantage of the animated world to really tell bigger than life scope stories for this for less than what it would take to do it live action because um, you can go overseas for your especially in 2d like all this stuff there's, there's a lot of opportunities they're they're not looking into well and you know especially now where they're not handcuffed to animation has to be for children you know it's not like late 80s early 90s where uh rambo robocop tales from the crypt all had to be pg down for kids you can make an r-rated cart you know animated series and put it on one of these streaming platforms for adults mm -hmm. oh exactly and kill with it i mean totally i mean like there's so much adult anime. I mean, you look at Love, Death, Robots, the Castlevania TV series, the way that Black Mirror sort of, you know, brought back the horror anthology, um, you know, even live action TV show. But you can see those things taking shape uh, for these horror icons. You have, you know, look at like, look at this position that New Line's in right now, where I said it's Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th. It's under the New Line banner. The New Line banner is under, you know, Warner Brothers distribution. Warner Brothers is one of the leading industry animation companies. What they do, like, obviously, we've seen the DC films. We can argue about the Snyderverse. But one of the most successful money-making avenues that Warner Brothers have are the animated Batman films. You go on HBO yes. Max, there are 
Oh my god, you could spend weeks, months watching these films. The Long Halloween Parts 1 and 2, beautiful animation, beautiful storytelling. It's everything we want. And it's and you compare the cost of doing the Long Halloweens Parts 1 and 2 versus what they had to spend to make Justice League twice. I guarantee you that the Batman animated films have made gobs of money, whereas they're probably still paying off the bills for Justice League. So it is for them not to explore it, even though horror is typically a, you know, for Blumhouse, it's a five million dollar investment. Um, when they do the Halloweens, they jump up to about twenty million dollars, you know, ten to twenty million dollars. Same thing with Friday the Thirteenth. You're looking at a film that's going to be between five and fifteen million dollars for one point two million dollars. You could go and make a feature length Friday the Thirteenth film um, animated, put that on HBO Max, and it would, you know. For, no pun intended, it would kill. It would show right. up. For that. A, it, it would blow up. People would tune into that night one, and they it would, you know, whatever, however they calculate how much money, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sure they'd see subscriptions go up. I'm sure people would sign up just to watch that film, even if they were going to sign up, pay the $4.99 or the $10.99 it is for just one month of, um, one month of a subscription, just to watch that film once, they'd do it. And then, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? And then maybe they stick around and they become, you know, then they're paying ten ninety nine every month to watch you watch the other films. Now, if you make it an animated series, you know, not a series where you're going to have to watch like, oh, how are they going to weave in like 10 episodes of Friday the 13th? But they said, hey, listen, eight episodes we're going to release over, you know, a two and a half month period. You're going to get eight different Friday the 13th films. Imagine like the fan film type mentality with like, you know, nothing's off the table, but with a series of better filmmakers who actually know what they're doing. Like every single filmmaker has some sort of experience in the industry, you know, uh, script writers that have actual credits to their name, directors that have credits to their name, people that have quality attached to their name. And all of a sudden this sort of concept that's been built out of the fan film boom is now put in the hands of professionals. You're going to see that game elevated even more. And I think that that's what, fans would love i think that in fact i guess i could say it now because it's been three years but i pitched this to warner brothers animation i sat in the offices and watched the jaws of the animation executives at warner brothers go this is a brilliant idea we should make this happen and if it wasn't for the second lawsuit if it wasn't for sean appealing and losing again you might have that this year you might have had that this year because I pitched them eight episodes. I said, listen, I continue the Never High Alone storyline through one of them. And the other seven episodes, let's go find seven more directors. Let's go find seven more writers. And let's go create seven more stories. And then in season two, I'll continue the Never High Alone storyline again. I'll do another entry. Whatever episodes people really gravitate towards in our eight-episode series, maybe we can do a sequel to one of those. But the rest of it, we just scrap. We start from scratch. We find seven new people, or we bring back people to tell another story, and we go from there. And like an animated anthology. Yes, an animated anthology. And what I what I associated it with was imagine that feeling you went in to the video rental store when you were a child, and you looked at the shelf and you saw 11, 8 to 11 Friday the 13th movies on the shelf. It's like looking at a pizza with 12 different slices. And you go, hmm, which slice do I want to eat tonight? Do I want to have pepperoni? Do I want straight cheese? Do I want, you know, pineapple? Which I would say that would be Jason Goes to Hell. Um, or do I want, you know, 
you know, or do I want, you know, something meaty like part seven or final chapter? You know, what do I want here? And, you know, we all have different, you know, avenues and whoever, you know, whatever piece of pizza gets picked the most, that's the one that gets another episode next year. That's the one, that's the filmmaker or that's the concept that says, you know what, maybe we should expand upon this. Uh, maybe we should keep it going. And honestly, the one that I think would benefit the most from animation and I think would do the best in animation, would have the most fun in animation is Jason X and Jason Goes to Hell. Because I oh, think yeah. if you expand on those two stories, you now bring Jason to hell. What better way to have Jason in hell than in animation? What better way to expand the world of Uber Jason than animation? You know, on Earth 2, with whatever's left of his body being regenerated by the nanobot and wreaking havoc there, you can bring it to a place where, like, now you can really expand upon the you know, nanobite technology or those things, nanobot technology, sorry. And then, you know, Jason goes to hell, you expand upon, like, what hell looks like to Jason and have it be really, you know, creative. And it's an opportunity to say, hey, Adam Marcus, why don't you come back in and expand upon your idea, explore it in a way that's never been explored before. And you don't have to tie yourself to any other film in the franchise. Just keep making your thing and keep it different. Same thing with Jason X. Maybe you go call Todd Farmer up and you say, hey, Todd, you wrote the original Jason X. Why don't you sit here and write Jason X, too? Where would you take this story? You know, partner him up with a young, you know, a young filmmaker that's like really passionate about it. Me, um, and say, hey, I got this really great idea for how to bring it back, how we could do it. Um, do it this way. And then bring in people who are like, you know what? What if Jason was this? What if Jason was that? What if Jason wasn't a boy? What if Jason was a girl? What if, uh, you know, what if this was on a different planet? What if Jason was an alien? Like all these things that like isn't going to hurt the franchise because the point is, is to be radical and out there. And there's no investment to say, Hey fans, you've been waiting 13 years for a brand new Friday the 13th. And guess what? We made Jason an alien. Don't you love that? And this is the only film you're going to get for the next five years. So you better enjoy this one because you're not getting anything else. When fans know that they could literally skip that episode or they don't like it and go to the next one, there's something that they really like. It's a piece of pizza that they've been waiting to chop down on. They'll do it and no one's going to get hurt by it. But there's at least going to be some sort of a fan base that's like, yo, Jason the Alien's friggin' hilarious. You right. know what I mean? Like, who would have thought about this? This is wild. But because, you know, and I feel like that's the way we feel about the films. Like, you know, in 1993, when Jason Hell came out, Jason Goes to Hell came out, and then in 1994, when it came out on VHS, when, we, when I finally got to see it, I went, what the hell? <laughs> you know, I've been waiting for this film to come out, and this is what I get? This sucks. What the hell? Like, I was so mad. And now when I look back on it, and I know that I have, you know, Jason X after it, and Freddy vs. Jason, and the remake, and all the other films that came before it, it's sort of like, ah, maybe I'm in a mood to give this film another chance tonight. You know, you, you're, you're, since it's surrounded by other things, you're willing to give it more of a chance versus like, all right, all bets are on the table for this one. And I think that's the risk of them making a new Friday the 13th is, you know, when a new Friday the 13th comes out, they really got to hit a bullseye. People are expecting it to be good. People are expecting it to be something that they walk away from and feel satisfied. And if they don't do that, it's going to be detrimental to making more films. Another film is not going oh, to yeah. come. There's no guarantee that a part two is right behind a part one. You know, if it doesn't make money, the studio will cut ties right then and there. Because as we know, in 2017, there was supposed to be a film that came out on the day that Never Hike Alone came out. 
it got canned while it was going into production. They were painting the cabins in Georgia, getting it ready to shoot. And they canceled it because Rings bombed, a film that didn't even have anything to do with Friday the 13th. They still cut it right then and there. Even though money was invested, a script was written, and things were being built. I actually got a chance to go to K&D, um, you know, one of the leading um, uh, effects houses that was going to be in charge of making the new Friday the 13th. I got to see the designs that they paid for. It was cool. Like, I would say from a design standpoint, Jason looked really cool. The mask, the new mask looked cool. Him as a child looked cool. The little medical mask that they had on him. The script was garbage. But... The, you know, there was money invested, you know, fan, you know, studios invest money in development all the time. They cut films that have been developed almost to a T and are ready to shoot, you know, right before they go out the thing all the time. It's a huge risk for them to go out and make Friday the 13th in the theater with nothing else supporting it. If it has an anthology series sitting underneath it, if it has, a, you know, graphic novels that are coming out that are brand new storylines, you know, it's just hedging their bet. It's giving them a chance to take a risk with a feature film and say, hey, if you don't like the feature film, if you don't like, you know, Chucky the robot, you know, you got Chucky the doll, you know, still streaming for you on sci-fi channels. So go watch that. And, you know, the studio's still going to make their money. Um, and the fans win because they don't get forced into a box of something that they don't like and are force fed to eat it. Now they have a chance to be like, you know what? Not for me. I'm going to go watch this thing. Or maybe like, you know what? I'm sick of the old stuff. I've seen this a million times. Give me something brand new. Okay. This is brand new. I love it. I can live with this. Make another one. You know what I mean? It, it's sort of it like, it will, will just sort of temper the anger of fans coming to the internet and being like, I, I hated it or I loved it. Because we know that that's sort of like, that's what the internet is. I mean, it's, it's full of people saying they either hated something or they loved something. And then them disagreeing and it becoming a big war and talking about it versus like it being something like they'll be distracted by it because they actually have something they because people want to talk about things they love. And I feel like if you give them something they love, they won't talk about the things they hate. So give them something. Oh, yeah. So before we wrap this up, where can listeners throw gobs of money at you and follow you on social media? Totally. Um, so we're Womp Stomp Films is a great place to find us. We're on YouTube, Facebook, you, uh, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok sort of. Um, but YouTube is, is the place where you really want to go if you want to watch the films. It's youtube.com slash Womp Stomp Films, W-O-M-P-S-T-O-M-P-F-I-L-M-S. We have a crowdfund running right now on Indiegogo for Never Hike Alone 2. Never Hike Alone 2 reaching the $250,000 um, reach goal will mean that we will add more scenes to the film and we will create uh, this short animated film called The Ghost in the Fog. Um, and if we reach $300,000 limit, we will expand the film a little bit more and create something called The Ghost of Crystal Lake, The Origin of Ghost Jason. Um, for fans in another animated fashion, which all of these things will come out within the next year. I, I think Ghost in the Fog is something that can come out probably next spring before we go to shoot. Uh, Never Hike Alone 2 will come out in uh, October 13th, 2023. And then if we do get to make The Ghost of Crystal Lake, that will probably come some, sometime in 2024. You're turning into the gift that keeps giving here. <laughs> I try to be. Because this means you're going to be back. 
Oh yeah, I definitely got to come back once we start to, you know, obviously when we're promoting to release the film and then once the film comes out, you know, I can't wait, like, that's what I can't wait for is the film is out. I can actually talk about it. We can talk about all the things that have been living in my brain for the last five years that are now on screen and say, what do you guys think? Right. Listeners, I will post all of those links in the episode description and you can find me and other great podcasters at electronicmediacollective.com. Or if you just want to find me on Twitter and Facebook at Moose Media Inc. Vincent, this has, and as always, a blast. I look forward to Never Hike Alone 2, and hopefully we get to eventually see Ghost of Crystal Lake, because that sounds fucking phenomenal. Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to be here, Moose. Um, and I always appreciate, you know, you having me on and having a chance to, you know, spread the good word of Wompstown Films. Oh, definitely. And like we just said, you will be back. <laughs> I, I, I guess this is turning into our own. Uh, it, it'll be our own uh, wrap up to a trilogy next uh, spring or fall. Definitely. So, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on. And until next time, Horror Hounds, mash on. <laughs>